0: Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them, and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to SpeechDynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Have you ever been responsible for a student clinician in the schools? At first glance, it seems like a fairly easy task. Just maybe demonstrate a little therapy and then let them get some therapy experience with your caseload, right? <laughs> uh, no. There's a whole lot more to it. It definitely requires some forethought, organization, and dedication. And we have the best person I know to help us do that today. Grab your pen and paper. Here we go. Today, Sarah L. Armstrong, M.A. S.L.P., is my guest. She is a speech-language pathologist, S.L.P., with almost 25 years of experience, Sarah earned her undergraduate degree from the State University of New York at Binghamton and her master's degree from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She has vast experience in the schools as well as private practice and has worked with all ages of children from infancy through high school. In fact, she started her career in the Montgomery County Infants and Toddlers Program in Maryland. Currently, since 2010, she's been the SLP at South Forsyth middle school in Cumming, Georgia. In addition to serving students at her school, Sarah is a member of the school district's SLP Advisory Committee. Personally, she enjoys playing tennis. And as I was preparing all of this, I noticed that all of her activities begin with a T. So she enjoys tennis, traveling, training for half marathons, very cool, playing trivia, and spending time with her friends and family. Sarah and her husband, Kevin, have three teenage children and a spoiled dog child. <laughs> but she says that one of her primary passions in life is mentoring aspiring SLP interns and helping them navigate their way to become certified, qualified individuals. Welcome to the Speech Link, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Great. It's, I'm so glad that you're here. So right off the bat, what stands out most in your memory when you did
1: your student internship in the schools? Um, you know, that's a really good question there. Um, it, it was quite a long time ago, but I think that that there's two things that really stuck with me. Um, I had not a great experience um, in one aspect where I felt like I was being talked down to but not given any guidance and that caused a lot of anxiety for me um, and really made me question if I was even going into the right career. Um, but then I was fortunate to have a supervisor um, in my graduate program that realized that my placement was not in my best interest, and I was able to go to a different placement where I really felt that I got valuable feedback, um, constructive criticism, um, but also you know, a lot of positive praise uh, when I found things that I was good at, um, to give me that confidence to say, okay, I can do this, it's hard, but I can do hard things. And I think that those are the memories that carried with me the most as my career progressed, know what I would or what I wouldn't wanna do if I were a graduate supervisor. Those are the things that stick in my head the most.
0: Well, that was kind of a nice way to begin. It probably didn't feel like it at the time, but you learned what not to do and what to do if you ever supervised anyone yourself. My first question here is, are there any preparations that you do or that you think anyone needs to do that's planning on supervising as far as you know, preparing before that
1: person comes on board with you? sure i mean absolutely i think the first thing that is really important is to take a good look at the challenges you might have at your job i know in the school system um, it changes every year we have varying caseloads and some years are just more stressful than others Um, so i think that it's really important to ask yourself is this a good time for me to take a student because if you're stressed out at work um, and you just feel like you have too much on your plate, you can't look at a graduate intern as someone to take that weight off of your plate. Um, you're there to teach them how to navigate. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't um, you know, expose them to when things are more difficult, but certainly um, the first thing I, really ask myself i'll take an honest look at my schedule and say is this the best time for me to have a graduate intern and will they get a good experience out of it so the preparation mentally i think is really important um the second thing is to look at scheduling um usually you are working with one or two universities depending on your area although i've had interns that have come from out of state before um and really just looking at their calendar and seeing how it gels with your calendar. Um, Because when uh, a supervisor from A, college says well at the end of the semester you know you want to know at the end of your semester or the end of my semester because those are you know usually varying degrees um, i do like to get some background information from the clinical supervisor um, at the college campus but i also think that it's important to um, give time uh, in my schedule prior to having them start to sit down and you know see what they are passionate about um and have those conversations ahead of time to give them some perspective and along with that just kind of the nitty gritty things being prepared letting the the people at the building that I work in let them know that i have a a graduate intern coming make sure that they take care of the paperwork ahead of time um, because there's really nothing worse than having somebody come in and then realizing they have you know a day or two days of paperwork i know some school systems require they go through trainings of of different kinds um, non-disclosure information making sure they've signed confidentiality agreements so just kind of having that checklist of all the the nitty-gritty things that they need to do or have done before they get to me. Wow, that's
0: very comprehensive. And I am so glad that you mentioned that just because a person is busy doesn't mean that student is going to take the weight off. I have found that when I actually did supervising in the schools, it, w- it actually added to my day. Absolutely. Yes, if you do it right, I think that you want to put in time with that person. They're not just there to reduce your caseload for you.
1: Exactly. No, for sure. I think, you know, that's a, that's a definitely a very salient point because Especially at the beginning of an internship, there's a lot of um, teaching heavy time. I mean, every clinician comes in with their strengths and, and their needs, kind of no differently than we would assess a child in the school system. Um, you know, just to look at what, what are your things that you think you're good at, what are your things you think you need help with. And you need to make sure that you have time to not just model what you're doing um, in therapy, because a lot of times that beginning time is an observation. But when they really start to you know, take over some students, you need to have some time to be able to give them feedback about what went right, what you might suggest they try next time. Um, and that, just like anything else, that adds minutes, which turn into hours in the day.
0: So when a student comes in, take me through the first hours and days
1: of that experience so in in my experience the first thing i like to do is to have a time prior to their start day um, that we could just sit down and i try to carve out an hour maybe sometimes two hours just to explain to them the workings of this placement because every placement is different and every even within the same school district schools are run differently Um, so Obviously, the first thing is to get them in the building, and you know, start introducing them to a few people without overwhelming them. Um, to say, like, you know, your point people, like, if you're going to come in the front door, you're going to see the same receptionist every day. Like, let the receptionist know that you have that student. Um, so, I really like to sit down with a a student initially, and before I bombard them though with everything that goes on in our school, I like them to tell me about themselves. Um, fortunately, speech pathologists generally like to talk. Um, I mean, but some are shy. Um, just to say, you know, what what do you enjoy? What have you enjoyed about graduate school? Um, tell me about your clinical experience on campus, if they have a campus clinic, just to get a feel for how many students they've seen, what kinds of therapies they've done. Um, you know, they might have a passion for one particular kind of student um, over another um, to see if there is any particular area that they would really like to get some more experience in. Mm-hmm. For example, my my last student that came in had said to me, I just haven't had a lot of experience with fluency. Um, and that in the school system generally speaking is a little less common than say articulation. Right. But I was fortunately able to, um, in this instant, uh, instance provide some really good opportunities for her to work on, uh, fluency therapy with some of my students. Um, so as you know, we have that, that discussion. And as I tell them what kinds of students we're having this year, um, the kind of breakdown of the day, because that's another very important thing for them to know, um, some some people I like to say find speech pathology to be an obscure job within the school system, um, especially the the higher in grade levels you get. Right. Um, so just to explain how the schedule works, and that the expectations of us in terms of making sure students get to see us, um, and then also how to communicate with the colleagues that are around us if we need anything. Um. So that really takes up a good chunk of time. I I usually find that I will sit down and talk with an intern for about an hour or so before we even ever leave my office. And then the big thing is to take them around the school, because some schools are very large our, our middle school is we went up through a massive renovation five years ago and it doubled in size and and also while you're doing this though the important thing is to gauge the body language i try not to let them feel too overwhelmed i reassure them this is really important to say i know this seems like a lot but i promise you it'll get easier as you do it um, and in my case we have some um specialized instruction classrooms, so those are classrooms we spend a lot of time in with students with particularly more needs than some others. Um, So it's important to me that those teachers um, or paraprofessionals get to know my graduate student to say, she's going to be with me or he's going to be with me all this semester. Um, And we kind of go from there. So I I find that that beginning, uh, at least day one, is pretty much a better thing to do separate of your first day coming to, to work because it gives the students some time to process. I know it's not always possible to do that, but for me, that is an ideal situation. If they can manage to find a couple of hours to come and sit down and chat um, and let me know about you know their needs and hear about how we work, I think it, it works better for everybody.
0: That's terrific advice. I can only imagine being a student and that student has been in the university setting for a few years and has maybe done clinical and has an hour to sit down and do case histories. And you're seeing one-on-one typically, and maybe the parent is in the waiting room and you get to interact with the parent. So it's a whole new world out there when you go to the schools. It just is.
1: It absolutely is.
0: Yeah, it's totally. So I love it that you're sitting down and talking with that individual and sort of pouring in some information, but also asking her or him their background and their needs and how they feel about everything and then taking them around so they can get the lay of the land. I, I think that is so very necessary. So let's say that it's the first day. And what
1: does that look like? So the the very first day, I like to have uh, prepared a, a binder. It literally says "intern binder" um, to let them know that this is sort of their Bible. This is this is what they're going to be able to refer to when they need something. And we add to that as time goes on. There, depending on the university, um, I've been fortunate. Um, the past few universities I've worked with, they will send a packet of information that has expectations of the intern expectations of the supervisor um, and you know all the nitty-gritty of how to log hours um, the necessary things that the interns need to know what they need to get done they usually do come in with a background knowledge these days um, things have gone from being all on paper to on the computer which is great Um, but they you know i'll I'll just say okay this is it and then the next thing of course is the schedule Now, I have my schedule printed out week at a time. Um, It generally does not change for the course of the semester, except for some tweaking of of students that we might need to change up groups. Um, But I like to give at least that day just to say, okay, here it is. We're here. It's 830. We're going to hit the ground running at nine o'clock. And here's what we're going to do and keep that chunk. I really do prefer to give them that one day and say, we'll talk about the rest of the week later, but we're going to get through this day and then say, and all you need to do today is follow me around and get a feel for what's going on. Um, Because. They really do need to have some time to observe, and if you've gotten an adequate amount of time, which is typically a semester for an internship, um, you should be able to have enough time to feel comfortable that you could observe for a week, um, for that matter, just in terms to uh, to see the whole perspective of what happens in the course of um, a five day work week. And so I'll say, okay, here's the schedule keep it with you let's go and with that we, we go and we might go into a classroom um, most of my days do start in one of our specialized instruction classrooms I say go ahead I introduce everybody I also introduce the students um, and that can actually be very overwhelming because a lot of graduate students have never been in a specialized instruction classroom. At my school we have a skills-based autism classroom, so a lot of those students are nonverbal and have behaviors. And to your point, Shar, you said, yes, there are a lot of times clinicians have gone and taken one child in Done therapy with them, come back and powwow. They've not been in a classroom with four or five, seven students that all have differing, varying needs and behaviors. And just to kind of ease them into that, um, I think is important because it is a lot to take in. So whenever we leave that that room, I take the time in the hallways as we're walking to our next place to just be like, it you can tell by body language. That was a lot, I'm sure. Or, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that. We'll talk about it more later Um, just to give that assurance that I wasn't expecting that that was going to be comfortable for you. And then we really varied the day, whether it might be uh, therapy within um, our therapy room or we might have to go to another classroom um, in the school building. Um, But that first day, my real expectation is follow me around write down any questions you have, and I will have time at the end of the day so we can talk about it. Um, And I really think that that processing time is so important. And even even with that, when they're leaving me on that first day, my next thing is, you might think of something tonight that you didn't think to ask me today, we'll talk about it first thing in the morning, we got a half hour to talk about it. Um, So having that time at the beginning of the end of the day is really valuable, I think. and we'll do that, that entire structure for the course of about a week. And by the end of that first week on the next Monday, I would, you know, see, do you feel comfortable picking anybody up? Do you, Or let's do this session together or give them a specific task within the time to do Um those things. And then the of course the other interesting thing that I had never had to deal with before the school year is is teletherapy. Um, We are now intermingling teletherapy with in-person therapy. And just the switch back and forth um, is something to consider in managing schedules. Um, Fortunately I'm finding that a lot of our new graduate clinicians because of our situation we're in have now had experience with teletherapy before they come to me, which they actually have more experience than I do. So, um, for for my last intern, that was a that was a great place to start because there was a certain level of comfort there. Very
0: good. Okay, let's get into therapy. Therapeutic expectations, and as we were saying, you know, they've done some therapy. Maybe they observed a little bit in their university clinic setting. They've watched you. And I certainly, when I had the student clinicians, I did not expect them to do therapy just like me. But when you've had student clinicians come in, how do you, as a supervisor, actually... How do you gauge their level of therapy, what they need? If you should jump in, do you ever jump in and um, sort of supplement what they're doing or quotes correct what they're doing? Um, Let's
1: talk about that therapy piece yeah absolutely and you know i think you make an excellent point which is um i don't take a graduate clinician in expectations that i'm going to clone myself i think that you know respecting the fact that everybody's got different strengths and a lot of talent there's a lot of talent in our field um i think that that's really important for me um what i what i do do is i i try to structure a session and um, a lot of times the first students that i might have my clinician work with are students that are maybe working on a repetitive project or a repetitive goal so that they've seen how i do something and i might give them a component of so if we have an activity and it has three parts to it and we've done this activity once before for example um, I'll say, okay, how about this? I'm going to start off and I'm going to do the first part. Do you want to you want to jump in and do the second part? So I have the structured activity there. Um, so I think that that you know, gives them a, a place to start a guideline. I don't expect them to do it exactly the way I did it. Um, and certainly if they don't seem too confident about it, You know, I'll say, okay, well, if you want me to do it one more time, or do you want to do part three or whatever it might be, um, you know, kind of to go in that way, um, I also do know that some clinicians are more hesitant than others to jump in. And sometimes it's kind of like mama bird pushing a baby bird out of the nest and say, well, just give it a try. You (laughs) know, it'll be okay. I promise those wings are going to work. So, I I mean, I just think that that's an important thing to know. It's okay because I I also point out that I've had many great plans for a therapy session that have gone out the window in the first Mm -hmm. four minutes because the student is just not available uh, for learning in that capacity. And right you have to kind of stop and change on a dime, that's okay. but um after you know they might have seen some of the activities that i've had um i will show them the you know wonderful inventory of information i might have in books um but i go back again i'm respecting that the uh, upcoming clinicians are far more technologically savvy than i am boom learning has become a wonderful place for them and um you know in my last instance they're like oh i have an activity like this on boom learning can i can i use that um and certainly so if they've got some tech savvy things that they want to try. I'm all for it. Um, and I do I do let them them flutter a little bit because I think you know sometimes you start an activity and it's not quite going so well. but I kind of just want to see, well, let me see if they can let me see if they can do it. And yes, especially in the first few weeks, I will jump in if there's something that, you know, just maybe needs to be modeled a different way, or I think the conversation needs to go in a different direction. Um, I work in a middle school, so um, especially, you know, adolescent boys can get off on their topics and we need to kind of come back to center. Um, But I think that those are great teaching moments to say, you know, there are certain lines that you have to, to keep from a professional standpoint. It is excellent to be able to engage with your students, but you do have to maintain that level of you are the adults and they need to respect you in that, that realm. And it is okay to not be their friend all the time. Um, You want students to, especially again, when kids are in elementary school, they're just dying to come to speech. Um, They think you're cool. And then in middle school, they kind of don't want to know you, but you know, you need to make it enticing for them to come um, and enjoyable um, through the difficult things we have to work on. But I do think it's just really important to start getting to those whys. So, um, and what I mean by that is to to talk through a student and say, okay, well, what would you do if you were thinking about an activity? And most of the time, a clinician can come up with something. Um, And then my next thing, okay, is why do you think we're going to do that? Or why do you think that that's important? Just to get them thinking through the reasons of, you know, that that it's just not you know, because that's what you did. So that's what I should do. No, well, let's talk about why we're going to do it. And we go from there. Mm -hmm. Very good.
0: It's all about experience, isn't it? And we all have to start somewhere. And, you know, we don't learn unless we do. And that personalizing therapy piece is so very important. And it is something that I have learned through the years. I mean, I certainly didn't learn everything that I needed to know when I was a student clinician but i did learn that hey just because i started out on this track on this particular type of therapy technique if it's working great if it isn't then i need to to know my options and be able to adjust and i think that adjustment piece comes with experience and i think it's great that you are willing to allow and to encourage your students to do that i think that's an important piece
1: I mean, I I do think that 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 adjustment piece is is really important. And I like to stress to um, my clinicians that I make mistakes all the time or I'm there's several students, even now, I'll be like, I'm a little stumped on this, um, you know, because we've tried this and this and this, and it's, you know, not seeming to work. Um, and these are the times I really find are great because I, you know, I, I stress to them too, that we're always learning. If you think you have nothing to learn in your field anymore, you, you know, you probably should retire because there's always so much to learn. Um, and i i learn every year from my clinicians i i learn the latest things that are going on in school i you know come to realize that the focus of my graduate program is very different from the focus of a lot of graduate programs now and really kind of empowering your clinician to say hey you know what i i'm absolutely positive that by the end of the semester i am going to have learned something from you that i didn't know so um opening up that dialogue and you know there is that i am i am their supervisor and and we have to you know maintain that relationship but at the same time you know i'm going to treat you as my colleague in the school because the students that you're working with don't really understand any differently that you know i'm or you are more or less of an adult quote unquote than than i am um so i think that that's really important to you know just continually evolve and try different things and to to encourage that and and know that it's not a negative thing. So very
0: very important that that they just feel comfortable in trying new things and that they have a sense of uh support from you that it's not a test. It is a learning
1: experience. Absolutely. It is not a sprint. It is a marathon. Mm -hmm. And you've got to just kind of pick yourself up on some days and say, okay, that went horribly wrong. Um, And you know what, I just learned something today, I'm going to do something different tomorrow. And it is it is just a continual process and i and I will say you kind of touched on something important, which I think that if clinicians think that they are constantly being scrutinized and judged with every little movement they make, they're not going to provide effective therapy because they are so worried about what somebody else is thinking of them um, I'm not not saying that they shouldn't take. Constructive feedback, um, and you know, they shouldn't try and apply that. But I think, as a supervisor, it is vitally important to say, you know, my most important um, job here is to better you for your career in this field. Um, so if you're not getting something you need from me, or something is making you feel uncomfortable, um, or you most importantly, don't understand something, I never want you to feel afraid to ask me that question. Um, You know, I remember being a student clinician and um, asking my supervisor a question, and uh, she was very dismissive with me about, I can't believe you wouldn't know that you should have learned that in your first year of graduate school. And, and that, I mean, right, so 20, five years later, that still sticks with me. I'm going, yep, yeah, but that doesn't help me. I, I still now, I still don't know what it is. And I asked you because I was giving trust that you were going to help me understand it. We learn a lot of things in theory that we don't get an opportunity to do in practice until we get into the real world. Um, and this is sort of a, a sheltered real world to try it. And I think that, in, our, you know, the clinicians need to really feel safe in being able to ask those questions without just you know, a ridiculous amount of scrutiny.
0: Very good. Oh, I, if I were a student, I would want to come work with you. (laughs) Well, thank you. I like your approach. You know, you mentioned something about providing constructive feedback. You know, I have been working with the Bureau of Education and Research, you know, for quite some time, many years. And, you know, they send us out and we do seminars and so on. And then once in a while, my uh, my quotes director comes out and observes me while I'm doing a seminar and then sits in the back row with his yellow pad and writes all day. <laughs> and it's a little intimidating. I mean, even after doing seminars for 20 some years, but then I have to say, when we sit down, we go out, Um, The usual dinner is fish and wine, (laughs) okay? I'm totally serious. And, And he sits there with his yellow pad. But I have to tell you, by the end of that dinner and the end of that session, I'm walking on a cloud because the way that he presents it is so tactful and so helpful, I don't feel like I'm being dumped on or criticized. And basically, he provides a lot of the things that I did right first. Absolutely. And then he comes along and he has a way of providing constructive help for me. Do you have a strategy that you use when you're offering constructive
1: help I like I like that term constructive help. I you know I do, and it's funny because you find that in the clinical setting, and I've had this experience that clinicians have been taught that when you talk to parents, you should present like one good thing the child did, give something that they need to work on, and then give something else positive on the other end, um, and. I think that's valuable in any scenario. Nobody, if you're going to sit there and dump on somebody the entire time, it's it's not going to be productive. Um, my real goals, and I, I do sit with my little pad actually um, for the first couple of times at least, and and I try to find and engage in something that they did really well. Um, and a lot of times, you know, those things you um, find that they do really well is not anything you taught them. You know, some, some clinicians just have, and, you know, naturally very um personable nature, or they've found a way to, you know, give some levity to a difficult situation. So my strategy is always to find a positive first, to say, you know, and sometimes it's like, you know what, I can really tell that I suggested that you did this because I saw that's exactly what you did in that first part. Um, and I think it went well. What do you think? Um, just to give them that moment, to give themselves a little feedback. But the important thing is to say, okay, so we'll have that. Now I did notice this. Um, I sensed that there was a little bit of a struggle. Um, taking the the negativity out of it in terms of like, well, you did this all wrong. Like that's not helpful to just to say, well, I noticed you did this this way with so-and-so student. Um, I might try doing it this way next time, and here's why. Um, just to find the why behind it, because if you just give orders but you don't give any theory behind why you'd try it a different way, again, then I'm asking them just to do it the way I would do it. Um, you know, without without any discourse of why it would be beneficial to try it a different way. Um, so, in giving feedback, I think that is super important. Finding those why why reasons of anything that we're doing. Um, and then after I go through my stuff, I I get back, okay, how'd you feel about that? Like, be honest, like, you know, cause I thought this and this went great. How did you feel about it? Um, because sometimes, um, you know, clinicians have a completely different view or they might've thought something went really well that I as a supervisor did not. And um, again, if we can get to the why, a lot of times we can have a really much better and um, productive discussion as to what was going on. So, for example, if my goal was to you know increase a student's ability to give me a full sentence using a verb, and um, we got to a point that you know she was working on that instance, but if there was too much time that she was spending on working on getting nouns and objects or whatever we we've completely changed the focus of the goal so sometimes they think that they're doing something and i'm not saying they weren't encouraging language but we we've lost sight of that that iep goal that we're working on um and so that's just feedback to say hey i get why you did what you were doing but that wasn't the goal of the activity um And that happens a lot of times, you know, that it's okay that you worked on it, but just to know that we didn't take any data on this goal that we were talking that we were going to do today, if that makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. So let's talk about some other things that are related. Um, And you just mentioned data. Do your student clinicians come in with that piece of information? And maybe they've been keeping data in their clinical setting, um, and but maybe it's not particularly applicable for the school setting. Do you talk about that? And uh, do you have specific ways of keeping data? Talk to me about data
1: collection. Absolutely, and you know I, I find that most clinicians have been very well trained in taking soap notes, um, and then you know we in the school system don't. Necessarily take data in that same realm. Um, They're also used to taking data one on one with a student. And, you know, often we're trying to take data in a group of three or four or five kids. So um, I will show them, for example, in the, if I'm in a classroom, um, the value of a small whiteboard uh, to take data. And then the other part of that is to say, I know that you're seeing these students every day, and we're going to keep. We have a keep a running log of who we've seen because obviously we want to, you know, make sure we're compliant that we have seen these children for their minutes. But you do not have to take a data point on them every single time you see them, and that kind of blows some people's minds that you don't have to have a percentage data every single time you do this for every single goal. Um, but you know, a lot of our students come in and they've got three to seven, as many as ten speech and language goals. Um, and that is, I, I, I don't think personally that's best practice, but, yeah. um, but to say, okay, but we're just going to work on these two goals today. And that's perfectly fine. Um, and then I have a variety of um, different ways you can tally. I, I usually find that they've had a couple of systems that they've tried within their therapy sessions on campus. And I talked, okay, well, what works for you there? What, what doesn't work for you here? Um, let me show you a couple of things I have. Tell me if these would work for you. Um, and usually we can find a happy medium um, in terms of what they're comfortable with um, versus what I might've done. And when we kind of get to that point, I think a really important thing to do is we decide, okay, we're gonna take data on this student today. I take data at the same time she's taking data. So at the end of the session, we can compare where our, our data is at to see if there's any matching. So if we're working on a child and we're focusing on their S sound, let's say for articulation therapy, and you know we had 50 trials. Okay, well, what percentage did you get? This is the percentage I got. Um, and just to make sure that you're sort of on the same page. More often than not, we're within a couple percentage points of each other, which I think is perfectly fine, um, but sometimes we're far off and then, you know, we have to come back and say, okay, well, let's see, like, what did you think versus what did I think? Um, and that again, is part of the growing process because maybe they didn't know exactly what they were supposed to be listening for, or maybe they were targeting something in a different way. Um, but it is, it is again, just part of a growth and learning process. Um, but To have those tools and, you know, just to say, you've got this to use, you are welcome to show me, you know, if you have your own way to do it, because again, when they leave me, they've got to have their own system. Um, And there's, I mean, we can go on any of our great websites, Teachers Pay Teachers, or, um, you know, any of these other sites, they're available to us. And 50 therapists have come up with 50 different ways to take data. (laughs) Right. one size doesn't fit all. And I, and I, again, that just goes back to the individual nature of what we do. Right. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say all of that. And the
0: whole idea with data collection for me is to keep the focus on the child and to see if what I'm doing is actually working. Right. Okay. Let's talk about report writing. Uh, is that something that you address specifically or is that an expectation that they should have it? Or uh, where are you with report
1: writing? You know, and I think that's an excellent question because depending on the level of the experiences at the college level um, while they're in their university setting, um, some of them may or may not have had the chance to work on report writing. Uh, Usually they've all had some experience. Um, I know that there are a lot of opportunities now to do um, these theory cases they have online, you know, there, there's opportunities there. The universities are utilizing um, basically invented cases on the computer and taking data to see, um, you know, can you, can you do this? They call it a SIMU case. And can you take that and write a report? Um, in the middle school setting, we don't actually do a lot of report writing because most of the students that we have have come in already and they've had their full Uh, report. It doesn't mean I don't go through it. Um, And then part of, of that, just to see if they need experience is, you know, I'll have maybe some kids that we reevaluate. And in, in our school system, we don't write a full blown reevaluation report, but we do write something for the, the IEP. And so I'll say, okay, like we're going to give, give the test. you give the test and show me what you you know would report based on that information and certainly i do have um sample templates when you're reporting um different tests you know just talking about um i will give credit the universities are great about teaching mean and standard deviation um, and and all of that information that goes into using a standardized test, um, I feel like my my job is more than, than synthesizing that information um, to come down with. So not only you know, being able to report what they saw, um, but how does one score relate to another one? How would you explain this to a parent? Um, and I think that that is really important. Now, I know if they're in an elementary setting, they're going to have more expectations with report writing. Um, and again, I, I do make a point while students are with me to be able to send them out to to an elementary school for a day, send them out to a high school for a day, um, to. To shadow to see how different it is because like I said earlier every school is different but certainly the elementary level is very different to the high school level and um, getting those therapists to share some of the things that they have to do um, because while I'm certainly aware of the things that they do there it may not be something that we're doing um, our and our end so Report writing, yes, it is absolutely important. We need to know how to report scores. Um, we need to know how to point out child strengths, relative strengths and weaknesses. Um, but I think beyond that, what becomes more prevalent um, in the internship experience is we have IEP meetings and those IEP meetings are with family members. Um, in most cases, it's mom and or dad. Um, and you need to be able to explain to them how their child is doing um, in a kind way. Um, you know, again, going back to pointing out those strengths, um, but also being honest about the needs. And I think for me, uh, in terms of that report is knowing how to give a verbal report on on a child, mm-hmm. um, yes. I think is so very important. Yes,
0: Give us some of your strategies that you use when you are talking about the report and talking about whether the child is eligible or talking about the improvements, the strengths, the weaknesses of the child. What are some things and and strategies that you use in the meetings? You know, I'm not going to sit there and just provide a lot of uh, numbers and so on. Mm -hmm. But I want to provide information that is
1: meaningful that the person can understand. Absolutely. We talk about this a lot about, you know, I am so glad that you know how to write um, this very detailed, intricate report. Now, go through that report and think about how many of those words an average parent will not understand. Um, So we've got to find a way to communicate this in a way that has meaning to a parent. And it is, it is very doable. I really say a lot of times the worst thing you can do is sit there and read off of a piece of paper. Um, because if you sit there and read what you just wrote, um, we could have just handed the piece of paper to the parent and they could have read that themselves. Right. Um, that doesn't help anybody. So um, having that dialogue with them to really let them know that you, you understand their child, I think is important. I like to start off with parents, um, kind of the same thing I said, pointing out, pointing out the highlights, you know? Um, you know, oh, what a polite young man you have. He was so pleasant coming in to talk with me and I know it was a lot to take in, but gosh, he did a great job of staying with me you know, just for giving something to the parents, because, you know, this is a very stressful time for parents. And I think that's another thing that I share with clinicians, like, this is like stressful for you, because you're learning how to do this job. Imagine being the parent of a child who's struggling in school. I mean, imagine being the child who's struggling in school, and they don't understand why. Um, We've got to find that level of compassion and kindness in what we're saying. And so I think it's Uh, really important again we we do pre-work on that right so okay we got this report or sometimes we've got a report that's come in from somebody else like just to to synthesize and talk through it like okay what are the high points you're going to take out of this like oh you know what they have a great vocabulary like I am so impressed with you know how well they did they know words that you know some 10th graders know um that's awesome. Um, and that allows you to say, you know, um, and, but you know, in that, that area, like I really am seeing that, you know, where we're having the breakdown is here. Um, and using those kinds of words I I think are really important. Then there's the other side that a lot of people don't talk about. You know, I think sometimes with the clinicians is like, and if the parent disagrees with you, like that's okay, but we have phrases that we can use. You, You don't cut off a parent and and say, um, you know well, that's just you're you're wrong because you know their experience is very different from yours, and sometimes actually oftentimes kids are very different at home than they are in the school system, and it is perfectly wonderful to let them sit there and I'm not saying to steamroll you and you know finding that balance, um but saying things like, "I hear what you're saying, unfortunately, we're just not seeing that in the school setting, and having those those phrases in the back of your head. really important Um, and then i think the other part is uh in the teaching process is don't take anything personally i know that's really hard um but you know these people don't know you super well Um, they may or may not be trusting of you or maybe it's somebody i've even had a relationship for a couple of years Um, everyone's going to have their opinion we've just got to kind of have that backbone as clinicians to not take things personally and have at the same time, the respect for yourself to say, I'm the communication specialist here. I've been trained in doing this. I totally respect that you're the parent. I, you know, we, we are not seeing your child at the same time you are. Um, But from my position and my professional opinion, this is what I'm seeing. And that's perfectly okay.
0: Yes, yes. That is so interesting that you even brought that up. Last week, I did a podcast on parent communications during difficult situations. And how to handle difficult situations, and uh, people wanted me to kind of put it in print, and then I've I've put it on my website. Actually, I put it up last night, and uh, I covered many of the things that you just talked about, and got into looking at the nonverbal signals that people do when you know maybe they are voicing one thing, and yet nonverbally it's coming out in another way. And uh, so I got very specific with those things, and that's so very important. We need to have a working relationship with the parents, the teachers, the administrators, and so on, and at some point, they need to know three things about you. And one is your heart, two is your level of competency, and three, your work ethic. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I completely agree with you,
0: yeah, so very, very important. I love all that you said about that, and that's not something that is covered, I don't believe, at the university setting. I've never heard of a class <laughs> that uh, that provides information
1: on how to relate to those that we work with. yeah, and I would agree with you because um, you know we we actually say often here that we're finding more and more that that uh, we wish that more high schools would teach soft skills in in their schools because um, those interpersonal skills are so difficult. And, you know, I mean, I have been through graduate school. Graduate School for Speech Pathology is hard. It is a lot of information and it's a lot of information in a two year period. And so there is so much knowledge that, um, you know, our field is so diverse in the areas that we cover. To be able to touch upon each one is already uh, a huge boatload of information, Um, but these other things are just like kind of with the experience that we have, we just learn as we go. And, you know, I, I point out that I have learned how to use some of these strategies by making mistakes that, you know, I've learned from falling down, but the most important thing is that you get back up and you try again. Right. So very true
0: couple of other things that I'm wondering about. Let's talk about how you bring in the reinforcement information that the therapist needs to know how to do for the kids. And reinforcement can be verbal reinforcement. It could be the tangibles. You know, also another thing I'd like you to talk about just briefly, I don't know if you provide homework for your therapy students or you know, some of those kinds of really practical things. We don't have a lot of time, but I think those are
1: kind of important things to talk about. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the the motivators because, like I said, a lot of middle schoolers are not motivated to come to therapy. And um, one of the first things that most of my interns notice is that I have what seems to be a small cafe in my room of treats and snacks um, because candy and, and carbs go a long way for making students, you know, interested in, in coming to see you. Um, and a candy bar goes a long way if you need something signed to bring back in. So, um, I am not beyond bribery. Um, but, but just to give a little levity to that, but in, in all seriousness, you know, it just, just like we, um, as individuals are motivated by different things, um, that we find joy in different things. Um, I think it's showing the clinicians that every student here might be motivated by something completely different. In some cases, um, with some of our nonverbal students, um, tangible rewards go a long way. But, um, you know, sometimes that's not always a feasible thing because of diets um, or other needs and that positive praise goes a long way. Um, but it's got to be sincere, sincere praise, um, not just, you know, everything. Good job. Good job. Good job. That that just becomes really tiresome some um but really pointing out things that kids do well um and not even just for our most severely impacted uh students but the other students that come in if they're trying really hard uh to get something right you know or fluency um we've had several students you know just those are sometimes I, I find clinicians because just they don't have the experience with it. They're they're not sure what to do. So when a student does do their best, pointing out something very specific, naming the specific thing, saying, wow, you know what? I could tell you were trying to use your stretchy speech there and it sounded really good when you got to that third sentence. Or that got, you know, maybe it's not as good as you'd like, but you really improved that as you moved along. I can tell you're really trying. So there's ways to give that reinforcement and motivation without sugarcoating it, right? Um, And even sometimes kids try something and they don't get anything right, but you can tell that they really tried. And, um, you know, you say, well, I love that you give your best effort every time you do something, but, you know, like, we're going to try this another way, you know, just just to give that sincere feedback, not, not to sugarcoat it, but to say, hey, yeah. Conversely, and this is another part that I think is a teaching experience, it is okay to address behavior if it's not appropriate. Um, I find this again most often with my adolescent boys who start getting a little goofier. They feel a little too comfortable and to say, hey, knock it off. You're not even trying. I can tell. Like, do you want to be here or do you just want to go back to class? Um, and, you know, most of the time kids are acting like that because they're enjoying themselves and they're like, oh no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, just to say, hey, you know what? you're allowed to correct the the, the negative behavior too. That's just an important thing to learn.
0: Yes, it is. Absolutely. And that whole idea of the intrinsic motivation as well, um, because the candy bar is more of the extrinsic, but boy, those intrinsic motivators are powerful. Absolutely. And when they begin to see that they are making progress, and especially when they make those discoveries themselves, and we kind of back off from being the speech and language police, and they begin to see and have a sense of their improvement. Wow, that goes a long ways, doesn't it?
1: It does. And you know, it's funny you should mention that because I I often say when when we're trying to get kids, you know, out of speech therapy, um, a lot of times I'll write a goal, and it's a self monitoring goal, and you know, to say, yes, you can actually take data on a self-monitoring goal because you let them do and say, hey, how do you think you did? Right. Um, You know, and and have those joys with them because I'm like I promise you someday they're going to like, I think I did really well. And you're able to say you did, you totally did awesome. Um, You know, those are those joyful moments that you kind of live for in my profession, I think.
0: Those are critical things that the student interns need to learn. And usually you learn it along the way, but wow, if they can learn it from you right out of the
1: gate, they're far ahead. Well, you know, you you just really have to try to present all the the different aspects of the job. And I think one of those things that come through when when you have these experiences is I think it comes through to your clinician like not just, you know, that you have this job that you do, but why you love your job. You know why you have a passion for this and and my my hope is always that if they haven't come in finding their passion that they've at least made a step you know in a huge leap in the direction of finding those passions of things that they really really enjoy not every therapist is going to end up in the school system and that's perfectly okay you know, I say I if you had told me 25 years ago I was going to be in a middle school and I would be loving life, I would have laughed. Um, but it's an evolution and it's a process. And I think helping clinicians find their joy in what they do. Um, and hoping they'd love it as much as I do. For me, I mean, they, you can't put a price tag on that.
0: Oh, that is so true. And I love it when I get emails or I'm talking with with SLPs and they say that they love their job. You know, And you have offered so many great points of information that's really going to give the student clinician a great start. And I appreciate
1: everything that you said. If I could leave you with one thought um, for the therapists out there, I think that if, if there's one thing that, to keep in the back of your head is that I tell clinicians all the time, these little humans you talk with are humans. They are living and eating and breathing and sleeping just like we do. And they have worries and dreams just like we do. And I think it's so important to put that human factor over the therapy factor. Because when you put the human factor first, you make better connections and you get more out of the experience. And usually you see more progress. So keep the faith. Very nice. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you. Yes, absolutely.
0: Mm Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charboshart.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well and God bless.